Welcome to Let's Talk About Treks, an episodic review of today's visions of the future featuring Earl Grey and Jack Dorino. Of all the angels they could have encountered, Jack and Earl are lucky enough for Star Trek Discovery Season 2's 10th episode to come across the Red Angel. <laughs> so we started So we started with the, with the throat clearing. We started with what? With, with you clearing your throat. That was the first thing. Yes, I'm sorry. First thing. No, no, you're good. No, no, that's, that's, that's one of our signature moves that we start with. Um, well, I was crunching on... I was crunching on crackers, and I was trying not to crunch in the microphone. Crunching on crackers. Yeah, that's cool. I, I, I get it. I don't mind. Yeah. I, um, I, I always appreciate... Our, oh, um, are you misinterpreting that? No, no, no. But I, but I did, I did. My brain did latch onto the word crackers and try to create a joke around it. There's one somewhere, but I'm sure we'll come to it later. Maybe, maybe some other time when you're eating crackers. Because between now and, and another show in the future, I'm sure we'll have both thought of a good joke to follow the <laughs> punching on crackers joke. But are you know, calling me a cracker? I mean, now if I did, that would just be crunching on crackers. <laughs> yes, we did it. We did it together. <laughs> we found it. <laughs> we did it during our presentation of uh, Star Trek Discovery episode 10 of season 2 which is called The Red Angel as says Memory Alpha who I'm going to continuously perform as like an amazing source of uh, material especially uh, like episode walkthroughs this is the 25th of so far 42 Discovery produced episodes and it's the 758th hour of Star Trek on television isn't that fracking awesome I yes. mean, there are seven. Are there really seven hundred fifty-eight hours of Star Trek to watch? Oh my gosh, my. I imagine so. Oh my gosh. So they're folding up the flag, and with there being an image on the inside, they couldn't fold it the same way and have it end up being significant. Like the way you fold a flat or an American flag, it leaves the star field on the outside, which is the biggest, most significant symbol of the American flag. Sure, 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 um, and. and- I'm a Navy veteran and I have a lot of experience with flags because I guess that's what we do is we play with flags. <laughs> um, but one of those things, of course, as, you know, coming from a military family is knowing very well the purpose of the flag and, you know, all of its little parts and pieces and what we do with it and why we do what we do with it. And um, I don't think there's any blood showing on the Federation flag. So there wouldn't be any blood to hide, which is what we're doing when we're folding it into the little triangle when we give one to a bereaved family member. Oh, so since the red stripes represent the bloodshed to win the country, right, 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 or or win the revolution, mm-hmm. you you hide the blood. Yes, we hide the blood, and we just show the. That's why they fold it to show only the starfield. Yeah, yeah, because we just show the honor because we're honoring the person, the, you know. Like the, oh, okay. The, the red's the blood, the blue's the honor, the stars are obviously the the states, um, and so we get rid yeah. of the red, show the blue, and that's how we. We show our uh, the honor to the individual upon hmm. the, the moment of, upon the. Uh, should I ramble about what word I'm looking for on the show? Would that be good material? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't think it would, to be honest. So um, the the significance of our conversation about the flag is the opening of the episode shows an autopsy of Arium. Ensign Lieutenant Arium. Arium. Yeah. Ensign Lieutenant Arium. Yeah, it's an Arium, is what her name. <laughs> and they're, for whatever reason, they don't archive her memories. They they delete them. But yeah, that's um, so sketchy. Go, like, I don't know how I feel about it. 
Oh, maybe she had a will. Oh yeah. Um, okay. But then they go yeah. to the big room with the USP flag draped over her coffin, mm-hmm. and they come up and fold it. You know, they they pick it up off the coffin and they tug it tight, and presumably they fold it into some representation of some shape or something in the United States military and fold it into a triangle to show only the Starfield. So that's what we're uh, discussing. It sure was. I, I thank you for that. Uh, the uh, So the Hanley Culpepper, <laughs> the Hanley Culpepper's uh, episodes, those are also some of my favorite episodes. Uh, and I don't really know why. Um, they made a big deal uh, about Hanley Culpepper directing first episode of Star Trek Picard. And uh, because she's a, she's a black female. And I... In, in some sense, I kind of felt like that they made too big of a deal out of it. Like, they did made too big of a deal about providing okay. representation. At least for Picard, they did. Like, they didn't mention anything about Hanley Culpepper in, you know, Discovery. But, when, like, when, when they mentioned it was, like, a big, like, thing. Like, Black Female Direct's first episode of Star Trek Picard. And th- th- for a moment, I was like, oh, you know, that's cool representation. But then it's like, um, are you overselling it? Like... Wouldn't it be better if you didn't tell people? If like people just found out and like, because I found out about about that on the Star Trek website, like at the front page of the website. So like that seems like you're trying to go completely the opposite way. You know what I'm saying? Like you're going now you're going too far. Where it's like, it's almost as if you're casting like throwing a bone. Like here we gave you guys this, so you can't complain about us. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like Star Trek Picard is like, no, we totally right. have yeah, like yeah, black yeah. friends. Like they do all of our directing. You know, like that's I don't know if that's. <laughs> uh, speaking of black women, well, maybe though, it was more um, significant in Picard. Yeah, because I, I mean, I get like so Picard. Uh, so I see, I could see how the flavor of it would be different for Picard, right? Because Discovery is led by a black female. Right, Picard is led, unfortunately yeah. or fortunately, however you choose to think of it. I mean, I think in some ways fortunately because it is patrick stewart excuse me sir patrick stewart for after all but it also is unfortunately for patrick stewart led by an old white man right the reason that people like wikipedia is because it's written by everybody and anybody when people used to look up things in a book called an encyclopedia or a set of encyclopedias they they were all these articles that were written from their perspective and by old white men with beards so therefore they were automatically you know they would maybe disclude subjects they didn't care about or thought were too risque to talk about or or controversial to talk about have a biased yeah so i think that's literally where the term whitewashing comes from i mean i don't know for sure but it sounds exactly like something that would make whitewashing a thing do you know what i mean by that have you heard the term whitewashing something i have but refreshed my memory so basically like if you if you're whitewashing something you clean it up to meet a certain set of standards. Um, so like history is whitewashed with, you know, our founding fathers being presented as, you know, people to look up to as opposed to God. reprehensible slave owners, <laughs> you know, um, you know, who you know, <laughs> sat on their pots of land okay. and, you know, gave themselves of one vote apiece and gave other humans who they considered no better than monkeys not a vote while they were doing all of the work to build the country, right? So uh, that's uh-huh. a whitewash of history to to call to to really have to really hold them up as these are because the idea they kind of held it as like these are the pinnacle of humans to be when clearly they may not be. 
so they 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 ignored certain facts in um in lieu of others to um make the people that they were writing about seem better than they really were as individuals uh so i don't know if it was really like like that nefarious i think it was just like they didn't like it was okay you know the time that the stuff was written originally it was okay so like and everybody had like slaves you know and it was like not a thing so like you take that history that was written like 10 years after you know written by the current victory and then you keep moving that same narrative forward and then eventually we don't we eventually take someone to step out and realize oh wait a minute these guys also own slaves because there's no way they could have done this that, and the other and then you look in history and you find like their the logs of the slaves that they bought and like all of the, the the things that we would consider like terrible now that were just okay back then so we it's it's this the whitewashing of history is to not give the full breadth of the story from multiple perspectives you know uh that, so this is this is the episode by the way uh when uh michael barnum is stunned when she learns that her ties to section 31 run real, real deep. Um, her parents are, uh, are, are, are tied up in section 31. And that sort of gives me, uh, it gives me hope for the future writing of Star Trek Discovery because they planned it so well. I don't know if they planned it, they, if they realized that they were gonna be section 31 uh, officers or section 31 attaches or whatever um, when they were starting the show. But I think that in order to craft the Red Angel story appropriately, they would have had to have uh, at least out of that then, if not before the start. Um, I'm always curious as to what ideas um, were thought of by Kurtzman and Fuller uh, before we saw anything. Like they, because Discovery was pitched as, uh-huh. as I understand, something different than what it's being presented or how it ended up being presented. Um, but the story of Michael Burnham is supposed to be like the story, right? So. I'm curious yeah. as to whether we knew, whether they knew that sec- that Section Thirty One was involved in in her uh, before second, like <clears throat> season one aired, you know, or whether each season is written completely from scratch. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Did they uh, figure out the, at least the whole season ahead of time? Unlike in older Star Trek, where, for example, in Best of Both Worlds Part One, Picard didn't even have a brother or a nephew. But in the episode immediately following Best of Both Worlds Part 2, then all of a sudden he has a brother and a nephew and a, a sister-in-law. And they in a whole, like, vineyard yeah. to, like, roll around in the mud as stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, But, like, yeah. this whole time he hasn't been back to Earth. He hasn't called anybody. He hasn't talked to anybody. Like, we haven't worried about them this whole time. And now all of a sudden, when you need something, you go run into them. <laughs> yeah. Like, I could see why Robert was pissed. <laughs> like... You come back here because you need me to like come beat you up in the field. Okay, <laughs> over the field. Let's get this mud. That aspect of his character wasn't written into the Bible of Captain Picard until they wrote that episode. Yeah. So what's what's wild is that like that set of episodes, specifically like the best both worlds part two and family. They are the ones that like completely changed Picard's character because he was invulnerable before. Like he saw yeah. himself. Like before this point, he saw himself in killed himself <laughs> down a like time suit right but like it's so like he, he was he was he, he had no vulnerabilities except for children get off of my chair <laughs> the continuing uh, review that we're doing today of uh star trek 
uh, The Next Generation, uh, season three, episode 23, and <laughs> season four, episode one, um, is going to be preempted uh, now <laughs> by a review of uh, Star Trek and Discovery, season two, episode 10, uh, The Red Angel, which is when, uh, armed with the identity of the Red Angel, the ship goes to work capturing this Red Angel, which is wild. Like, you're going to capture okay. the person who's been guiding you this whole time so far that seems a little mm-hmm. myopic i don't know if that's the word uh it seems a little uh juvenile like oh my god someone's been helping me out i'm gonna catch them what like why let them keep helping you i don't get it like why are you trying to mess with them like clearly like nothing they've done oh, has, maybe, been, has like hurt anything like everything that's maybe they're they just want to be able to figure out who they are and like seriously burnham wants to catch burnham for some reason do they even know that it's your mom yet? They find they found out at the end of this episode, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, I think that's the last thing that happens is that the angel descends, firing a burst of energy into Burnham that restores her vital functions. And with her life signs <laughs> returning, Giorgio orders Stamets to activate the phased discriminators. And they capture yeah. the red angel. But they don't capture the red angel. Well, they capture a red angel. Why is the episode called the red angel when there are two red angels? The spoiler for Project Daedalus was like, it, it was that, pro- like, I was waiting, like I said, I was waiting for the whole episode for someone to mention what Project Daedalus was. And finally, when Arium's like, hey, check out Project Daedalus, like, that's like, no, you, and then she goes. Like, so, like, that sort of buildup that they did around the title could have been like Red Angels, right? They could have called the episode Red Angels. And you'd be like, what the hell? What? There's more than one Red Angel? And then, oh, I guess that would have ruined it. Yeah, you are correct. I just feel like they, they're lying to me because they could have just said Red Angel. When they say well, the Red I Angel, mean, they're definitely making the the implication that there is a Red Angel, even though it's the, it's not the, it's the, but whatever. <laughs> they don't know that there may or may be more than one Red Angel. They're assuming that all these encounters, because they don't see more than one with them, is uh, the same individual. They know it's something in a suit, but they don't even know if it's human or or Klingon or Romulan or, or Tellerite. So they, they know it's humanoid because Saru saw it and Saru could tell that it was humanoid. However, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh no, it's not that he could tell it was humanoid. It's that he could tell that it was a suit. That was the thing about it, what he saw. Um, because uh-huh. we knew it was humanoid yep. because otherwise we wouldn't have called it an angel. Which is weird because angels are not shaped like humans. Well, like, they're a whole other creature. You know, biblical angels are like a whole other creature. Religiously, like, they've been... De- historically, they've de- been depicted as people with wings. Sure, yes, because... But God is also depicted as people. <laughs> you know, and God's not a people. So, uh-huh. well, I mean, God is all people, but, you know, let's not get religion. Um, we, we, yeah, we we don't need to get too deep into philosophy. <laughs> you're like you're like brain hitched as you change gears. Like, hold on, wait, hold on, wait. Okay, let's go on to uh, let's go on to uh, to fantasy sci-fi. I feel two distinct ways about the song that Saru sings. For Arium, I really enjoy Saru's voice. And I really I like this the, the song and okay. the sound of it. And then I'm also like, it's not Doug Jones' singing voice. It's Saru's singing voice, which speaks to like the depth of acting that Doug Jones is doing because Doug Jones sounds different than Saru. And I'm starting to realize that among the actors of 
Star Trek Discovery, uh, Doug Jones might be like the most experienced and the most skilled for he's what, been around what? in a lot of like big things. The guy's like I forget how old uh, Doctor Jones is, but I feel like he's he's been around for a long time. And okay. I shouldn't say I probably shouldn't say old because um, being forty three now I'm or am I forty four I don't know being <laughs> being in my forties my early forties I'm gonna say because I'm not forty five yet so but he's not older he's more experienced and he is more uh, prolific that's the word I was looking for um, but he was born okay let me tell you <laughs> you guess what year he was born he was born in nineteen sixty right so okay. I don't know how old he's then. He's 40, he's 60 now. He's like 60, 61 now. He's about, he's going to turn 61 this year. Um, in May, by the way, guys. If you, if we, if this episode was released before May 24th, 1960, make sure you send Doug Jones an email or a Twitter <laughs> or like a gift card or something from Amazon. Um, because that's the guy. He, um, he has this huge like depth of work, um, which is amazing. And a lot of the things that he's been in are very well-known things, but with a role that he's not very well known for largely because he's often under a mountain of you guessed it like rubber stuff because he does really good in playing a rubber face <laughs> yeah. thing so there's like the shape of water uh notably as, oh as, he's in there yeah, he's, oh, he's the he? guy the amphibian that's him okay. I, I i haven't seen i even seen that and i yeah been wanting to see that but did he also play Abe Dude. Sapien in the uh, Hellboy Yes, movies? sir. That's the guy. Yes, that's the guy. Oh, so him okay. him along the lines with uh, Ron Perlman. Like, they're the guys that are the best Which in... Is, the crazy thing is, is the, the creature in the shape of water, they're insistent that that's not Abe Sapien. But it, everybody it totally is. That movie. Yeah. That's totally it's him, like, 100%. It's totally Abe Sapien. Yeah, that's uh, him. Thank you for pulling out that name of the character because I was gonna, I was definitely gonna bring him up, but I was gonna like flip flop around like, what the hell is his name? Because I don't know it. I didn't know it off my head, so I appreciate you <laughs> um, for for bringing yeah. me the Hellboy yeah. reference, which was um, which was where You're I was connecting to Ron Perlman, who I connect with Beauty and the Beast. And now I have to connect him also, unfortunately, to Star Trek in the worst possible way, which is Star Trek Nemesis, because he plays the Viceroy under Shinzon, who I learned recently, like, went on this huge crack binge and, like, screwed his life up for, for a little while because Nemesis was so bad and poorly received. And they were like, really? Dude, how did you fuck up Star Trek? Yeah, yeah. Like, like um, I read the story where he, he, like, yeah, he, like, went off the edge because, like, people were, because you know how we are. Like, Star Trek fans are, are like, very particular and like that movie okay so okay. frakes frakes buddy frakes frakes is making up for himself but frakes was that a frakes movie uh nemesis i feel like it was and i feel like i think so yeah and i feel like i was mad at uh johnson frakes for a little while because like the jeffrey's tubes are not at an angle they're horizontal <laughs> right they're vertical you cannot slide well, out so of what are the tubes tube. that are on the original enterprise those are also jeffrey's tubes they're actually bigger Those are than the later ones. Are they, you mean Those like? At, at an I mean like in an angle where you have to like where it's a slope. That's what I mean. Well, every like, time they show Scotty in a Jeffrey's tube, it's at an angle. No, it's he's like, like straight up, or he's horizontal. Degrees. Really? I don't know if that's no. right, but I'll I'll go it's ahead like and concede. I'll concede. I'll concede to that right now, um, because I will say that maybe I just didn't notice that they doubled down. That they started doubling down then, because they shouldn't be at forty-five degrees. Because like. They, they're not really Jeffrey's tubes either because they only go in so far. Well, yeah, because Jeffrey's tubes should uh, twist and turn to run the length and width of the ship, right? Although, so I mean, if you, uh... if you watch uh, Star Trek Borg, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's 
Jeffrey's tubes that are big enough to stand up in. So, I mean, where, why there would are. they waste that? There are. That's true. Uh, there, well, okay. So since we've gone on, since we've broached the subject of wasted space, <laughs> is it too early to talk about the turbo lifts on Discovery? Have you seen behind the turbo lifts in Star Trek Discovery? <laughs> what is all that space for? Like, where do they fit everything else if all if they have all that fracking empty space? Like, what's what's going on with that? It's crazy. Why? Well, look at the look at the uh, turbo lifts on the uh, JJ verse Enterprise. Although uh, that Enterprise is so much bigger than the uh, real Enterprise. Thank you for saying calling it the real enterprise, um, because like, it, yeah, because it's totally like that's not that's not the thing that's not the, the enterprise thing. But it, but then they double down on that, like so then they even double down on that the production people, and they're like, yeah, so that is the real enterprise thing. It's just a little bit different. We just readjust a little bit, like is basically what they're trying to say. Because when they when we go to Discovery, we we sort of like redesign the original Enterprise so that it's more Calviny, and I'm like, uh, what is happening here? Uh, are we gonna like merge the universes and then do a story about how the universes merged? Is that what's happening? I actually had this, this some some ideas of that like Star Trek Discovery would, was gonna do that, like where in the oh. future, you know, maybe they maybe the universes like collapse back together and you end up with like some chaos where like there's some factions here and some people here and some things there that like are not. Part now of you're the, getting of too the, much like, into universe. a Marvel comic book. Am I? Am I? It's like a, it's like an Elseworlds <laughs> crisis. The Star Trek Elseworlds crisis. Yeah, yep. Except it that you're switching over to DC, but yes, <laughs> this is more Marvel. You're talking more Marvelized. Yeah, because Marvel like and, does like to like reboot the universe. Well, they both do, but um, I think Marvel does a worse job at it. <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, Marvel's very transparent about it. I think. Uh, and now we're back. We, I don't think we've introduced ourselves oh, to this episode God. yet. Let's start the show. Uh, so, so, so it's me. It's me. Look, it's me, Mario. No, it's yes, me, Jack Torino. And me, I Jack am Earl Grey. Hey, Earl Grey. How's your day doing? Just fine. Cool, man. So I was talking to uh, my buddy Earl Grey about uh, Star Trek Discovery 210. It's uh, the Red Angel. And here we are. I don't know if I did a whole like a whole ass open about about the episode. No, I did do a, I did an introduction to the thing. Uh, that's what I did. I int introduced the thing, but I didn't introduce us. Well, now we're here, and you guys know who we are, so we're gonna keep going. The peek behind the curtain is that generally I I I read uh, the like in depth episode descriptions. Um, having watched the episode like a while ago, and may, I may or may not have watched it again recently, and re by recently I mean like within the past week or so, because I, ha I I'm, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a hopeless turkey, right? So I'll watch, um, you know, Star Trek Discovery like again and again and again, like, it, like it's my law and order, like uh, like it's become my law. And order. Well, no, it's <laughs> law and order is my law and order. Okay, so nothing's ever gonna replace Market Hargadhar as um, you know my my go-to tv but you know if i'm not feeling like you know law and order special victims unit has enough you know phasers and space and beautiful scenes and cgi then i need to go watch some cgi and if i watch some cgi then i'm gonna watch some star trek because everything else is crap right anyway, uh, to be 100 truthful everything else is not crap um the expanse looks pretty cool um i tried to get into an episode though and it's a little too uh, it's a little too, I don't know if it's a little too rugged for me or like a little too uh, slow. I don't know what it is. It's just a little too, I don't like it. 
for me. It looks like well, it's really in- the, the, the commercials make it look really yeah. interesting, but then like I'll watch it and I'm like, oh my god, what? So boring. I don't know why. Well, have it's you like that. Uh, heard of the YouTube creator, science educator Kyle Hill? I have not. I wish you would tell me about. He's an engineer. Has his own YouTube channel just called Kyle Hill. I don't know if I should mention that he was formerly of another YouTube channel. I think he's trying to erase that from history. Ooh, juicy. But he makes a lot of uh, YouTube content that revolves around how could you really have a lightsaber in the real world? How would it really work with the way physics really works? You know, pop culture, technology, how could you get that to work in the real world? How could you really have adamantium bones or really fly or really run as fast as uh, the speed of sound or the speed of light you know referring to Flash and Wolverine I watched this Wolverine movie the other day where they put the adamantium into Wolverine I don't know if I buy it oh okay X-Men Origins Wolverine thank you they put the liquid adamantium into like they injected it into him and how hot do the injectors have to be when they pierce his skin and flesh and bones to put it into, what do they put it into his bone marrow? Or do they like, like the only way to do well, what they it, it infuses is to like with his actual it. bone. Yeah, but how does that work? Like how do you infuse bone with metal without like messing up the bone? The the reason that only Logan could have done that is because- Oh, his regeneration, his, right. His regeneration. Sorry to preempt you on the on the. On the, on the, on the There's no translation that I found online so far about the Kaminar song and what the words are. Because I would like to know what he's saying in Maybe, the song. Do we like, need one? Yeah, man, I want to know what he's saying. He's like, is he saying like, uh, may the kelp rise with you, or like, may you go out with the tide, <laughs> or because I'm sure it's like, you know, uh, predator prey kelp water mixed. You know, there's something about it that's probably like kitschy, and then something about it, you know, like. There was a song that was in Bellastar Galactica that I, for some reason, associate with, with death, even though it was Felix Gaeta, who didn't quite die from the reason the song came out. Um, but uh, it was good to have the words because it gives uh, a, de- a more more depth to the whole thing. It's almost as if they didn't want to give too much depth to Arium because they know that they screwed us last episode by <laughs> making, by, like, drawing our hearts in and then, like... Uh, breaking them because I was really <laughs> excited for Arium to be my friend. Like Data was my friend when I was growing up, and, I was like, and he's not—he's not. She's not. She's not there anymore. Uh, this is the first appearance, by the way, of uh, Sarah Mitich as Lieutenant Nielsen. Okay. So she was the one who last season was playing Lieutenant Commander Arium. Um, it is a moment. <laughs> That will live in infamy in my head when Arium sands all of her like robotics shit, appears back on the bridge, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, that's not Arium. That's totally someone different taking Arium's position." <laughs> You're like, "You guys don't recognize your little friend, but she's right there. She's right there. She's right there. Like she's right there." Like <laughs> the um, casket, by the way, is not lowered into a torpedo launch. It's lowered into a landing pod launch bay. The distinction is. Uh, minute and still not and, and even less logical <laughs> well it seems like the torpedo that she's in would be too narrow to be 
thrust. I mean, yeah, there's space for it, but the reason that the torpedo bay launcher is is tied around the torpedo is so that you, you don't they kind of shoot it out like um, by what mechanism? Is it is it uh, you know a rail gun? Is it like so a maglev? So I can only uh, I can only speak for. I can actually I can speak for a, a supposition of what I think of 24th century technology. I'm sorry, 22nd century technology, and I can also speak to uh, current, well, slightly old uh, military technology. And let me tell you, the first time I saw a torpedo launched, I was so mm-hmm. unimpressed. And basically, all it is is like the torpedo is like attached to the side of the ship, and they just like uh-huh. release it. So it just like bloop, drops in the water. That's it propelling force of the torpedo is created by the torpedo not by a launch yeah. system right so uh, like you can just drop it there and then it'll shoot off okay so like why do they need and so like in space why do they need a landing pod launch bay like that seems to indicate that the landing pods can't launch themselves into space that they have to mm-hmm. be so if they can't launch themselves into space then how are they maneuvering in space Right. Okay. Right. We got right. And like, if the landing pod launch bay is used to shoot out dead folk, then where do they put the landing pods? Where do they go? When they got when they have dead people, like where they yeah. they they pull the landing pod out, and then they put the dead person in. Why don't you just drop them out the back of the shuttle bay? Like, wouldn't <laughs> that make much more sense? Like, can you just get like a t-shirt cannon and just like boop? Like, shoot that thing down. <laughs> like, and really, could well, we not just At least left- just by evacuating the uh, shuttle bay, you would have the air just rushing out that would push it forward. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Like, it seems like a waste <laughs> of power. It seems like a waste of energy. That we have, like, we're not resource tight in the Federation. Uh, at so, least not wait a minute. Time. To go back to the other show that you really like, Battlestar Galactica, BSC, the original man. Battlestar Galactica, they launched down a tube. Could they yeah, fly so, under their own power to be but launched check this out. out of the ship? Check this out. So, like, in the reborn Battlestar Galactica, the, uh, the ships, the Vipers, are, like, shot out into space as if they are, like, on an aircraft carrier. Right, so an aircraft carrier has that length, so they can get okay. the speed up to reach that seventy-seven or what is it, 90, 77 uh, miles per hour, so they can get you know the flux capacitor to work, and it'll launch them back into time, and they can make it into the air, you know, like because they have enough speed for the lift and all that, right? We both know how an aircraft carrier works. It's basically a slingshot. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in Battlestar Galactica, they do the same idea. They use the very same thing. So they they not only do they launch them from the slingshot, but they like it whenever they can. The pilots catch are caught back on the slingshot, and they like can be launched the other way out of the other side of the tube. You know, once they've gotten repaired. This is not the way. This is not the most efficient way to do this in space. Like I'm pretty sure the way we do it now is we just like you know open the door and like give it a little push, <laughs> and then let it you know run itself like why i don't know it just seems wasteful for the mother to do everything for the child can you put a door on there just seems a little safer you know i just i just i would just feel safer if just had a door uh, a door where on the back of the shuttle bay man <laughs> the whole back of the ship there's no door Which... there's no door man the starship discovery is wandering around space with the with the pants the back of pants open like all the time there's no door oh, on really? that shuttle bay yeah man there's no door. I've never noticed that. Yeah, there's no door. Like, because, I mean, there's I a always... door on the on all the Enterprises and all the Voyagers and all of the... Of course. Of course there are. 
Um, okay. There's even doors. Like the only places there's not doors are the like are the standard size Starship docking ports on you know on on a regular one class station or like a, a Terok. Uh, what's that class of station? The, the Terok Nor type, you know, Deep Space Nine station. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is an ore processing factory anyway. Well, uh, actually, the um, landing pads on on Deep Space Nine actually have. A door. The runabout could lower into the the landing pad. There would be a door that closed above them, so they do have a door. Well, okay. I mean, I'll give you that. Uh, I I'm gonna I'm gonna remember the episode where the Romulan shuttle lands. It's cloaked, and they're like, you know, just open the door and raise the elevator, and and they wait a few seconds, and okay, close the lower the elevator and close the door. But there's nothing there. Yeah, dumbass, it's cloaked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, so most importantly, I do remember that those things lower, like, so that's one of the cool features of Deep Space Nine. Like, there's many cool features of Deep Space Nine, Avery Brooks notwithstanding, but, like, that is one of the things where, like, you just land your little thing there, right? And, like, they just, they drop you down in the thing, you, they close the doors behind you, they, like, take the little platform your little shuttle's on, and they move it out of the way, and then, like, somebody else can come land. How many platforms do you think they have that are mobile that can go under those things? I would make, like, ten per per platform. (laughs) Just to make sure. That I don't. I don't know if they're mobile. I think somehow. I I've never f- quite figured it out, but I I would think that the shuttles to get out of the way or the runabouts or the, whatever, I think they kind of. Sort of hover fly down the tube a little bit, because you how do you move the shuttlecraft that are, like supposedly the Enterprise E has all these shuttlecraft they're stored under the ground of the you know the shuttle bay and so that you can keep the shuttle bay open and massive and clear uh they're just stored but how do you move them about when they're you know you got to be really careful with that shit no man you just put them behind the turbo lifts put it behind the turbo lifts. <laughs> there's all that space behind the turbo lifts like anything you need to store just put it behind the turbo lift <laughs> ample space I mean, I don't know why there's ample space, but there's ample space. Like, if if ever anybody was like, I can't find a place to put this, tell me, just just lift the turbo lift up so it's sitting halfway between decks and stick it in the turbo lift. There's so much so much space in there. There's like a whole world, a whole ass world, and an ecosystem system living back there with like um the little big hero six is back there and uh, Wally's back there <laughs> with like all of his friends. Like, they're all like hanging out. No, uh, hanging out back there like doing elevator welding. Like, why are they welding? What are they welding for? What are they welding? What? what, what are you telling Ladies me and gentlemen you? and others, uh, bring out your uh, bingo cards and check off Disney Superhero Universe. Yeah, yeah. Big Hero Six was not on my card today, but I, I'm gonna definitely <laughs> take my Big Hero Six card next time because Big Hero Six is a thing, man. It's a whole ass thing. Maybe they've got TARDIS technology where they ha- it's bigger on the inside. Maybe that's how the turbolifts work in Discovery. Yeah, they definitely have Time Lord technology on the Discovery, <laughs> but what a miserable and useless use of Time Lord technology. Like, usually Time Lord technology is like, yeah, I need my sweater. Oh, it's in the bedroom down the hall inside this little tiny phone booth, right? But, like, this is just like, no, we just got, we got space, man. We just got, we got big empty space, just in case you want to fall out of the back of the turbo lift. <laughs> new space there. Like, or in case we want to like have you like walk into empty space like Picard almost did when he was in, in his imagination, or Roz almost did before she died and then was reincarnated on Star Trek The Next Generation Season 2 as Dr. Pulaski. 
Oh, by the way, uh, LA, LA Law, by the way, is another uh, piece of bingo card today because that was the uh, reference to Roz, who died and then became uh, the doctor who I just don't like. I just don't like her. I just don't like her racist ass. I just don't like her. <laughs> I, I heard where they wanted her to make seem more like uh, uh, McCoy. Yeah, who was his... also very racist. Very casual racist, yes. But again, like I said before about, you know, you have to take each series with within the decade and the time frame that it came in. Making casual ra- racist jokes was just acceptable in the 60s. And today, yeah. yeah, I don't think that McCoy, if they had rewritten the show for 1983 or 86 or even even 2020, I, I think if they totally remade the show today for the first time, I don't think McCoy would have been nearly as racist. Hi, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask um, our, you, you, uh, you Earl, and, and uh, you, our listening audience, to let me know if in the Kelvin universe... McCoy makes any casual references to the green-blooded Vulcan, because that's fracking racism. Like, like shit, that's racism. <laughs> and uh, I feel like I remember Nukoy saying that, making a reference to well, green-blooded. Well, they were something. probably they probably wanted to make a reference to it being, you know, just like our original McCoy. You know? Yeah. So once a racist, always a racist, no matter what universe he goes to. That's cool. <laughs> Yes, man. At least we're consistent across the universes. It's dope. So, uh, Burnham recognizes that Tyler's trying to apologize for Section 31 having something to do with her parents. It needed to happen. Like, that needed to happen. She, she needed to be exactly like, uh, this is for my mom. Uh, this is for my dad. Because, <laughs> like, that's exactly what the hell he did. Like, that's ridiculous. And then there should have been another one for Spock because he caused that too because he did the thing with Burnham, right? Because the thing with Burnham had to happen, the thing with Spock wouldn't happen. Right. So like and then he needed to get then she needed to give him another one for her. Because if she had not been manipulated a generation previous, then she would have never done the mutiny. Because she wouldn't have been raised the way she was raised, she would have been raised she couldn't have done the mutiny because she wouldn't have learned Vulcan death pitch, right? So she would have been (laughs) raised by her parents who would have been like either regular Starfleet officers or scientists. Like so yeah, like bop 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 bop. For my whole family. It should have been Yep. It should have been possible for Kirk to learn the uh, Vulcan neck pinch. Uh, so I don't know why. I, I get that idea, but I don't know why that would be. To my understanding, it's a physical thing, and it's a, it's a, it's a finesse that somehow Vulcan like construction allows for, mm. not like physiology. Like it's not like an energy transfer thing. You know what I'm saying? Like that. At least that's how I definitely understand it now. Since Burnham can do it, it means that it's got to be. It's just got to be very difficult to do, and Vulcans, you know, focus on it to learn it. Yeah, and we just don't. As a people. maybe there's some tele- te- telepathic aspect to it. Yeah, there. So there is a touch telepathy that I've always understood that Vulcans have. I don't know whether that was a book read or what, but like, I feel like Spock should be wearing gloves because they're touch telepaths. <laughs> well, so, that, that's why they're Vulcans like, don't like to be touched. That's so why they do the Vulcan salute, and they, you know, don't generally shake people's hands. And are Deltons touch telepaths? I don't remember what I'm talking about, but I, I feel like the Deltons maybe are touch telepaths, and they have a big thing about like I'm wearing gloves because I'm not touching you because I don't want to get in your head. Um, well, I I don't think so because I think the Delton from the motion picture was supposed to be. Uh, D- Troy, 
basically rebooted the Deltons as Beta Zeds, Beta Sure. So Ilea so, was the first, um, they, the first, essentially the first Beta Yes, and they just rewrote the name of her species. So the Deltons were a humanoid species originating from the Federation planet Delta Four. Um, they were identified by their bald scalps and were known to wear headdresses. Yes. They largely resemble humans, and but the exception is that they don't have any surface hair except for like the eyebrows and their eyelashes and uh, occasionally I'm given to understand a very thin layer of soft down along the legs and arms um, also they're oh, supposed to be like incredibly that. attractive like to humans and like so attractive that they can't you know people humans can't like take them can't handle themselves around them right and they'll like fall in love with them e really yeah. easily just like the little blue guy from the Orville right mm, I'm a little miffed at the I don't know what you call that ism, um, but that ism is a, like beautyism, where like there is a standard uh, depiction of what beauty is, because TBH, okay, Ilea from uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture was not that pretty in my opinion for her to mm -hmm. be irresistible. I could resist her, I promise you. <laughs> I mean. Our our agenda probably helps, but well, I mean, like I can recognize yeah. a, an attractive female I when I see say. one, you know, and like I know seven of nine has the boobies, like and right. the body, right? And I know that T'Pol has the <laughs> like similarity there, like they they have very different ones, like very different bodies and hips and boobies and face, but like I can see that like they fit like a like a like an idealized form, but that's not okay. Like, this is beauty presented by Star Trek? Because Star Trek is the home of, is there in truth no beauty? Well, I, I, I think that it's not Star Trek presenting it. I think it's network producers or higher-ups or whatever saying we've got to bend over backwards to attract the audience mm. of a modern TV audience. Sure. And, and the demographic we're trying sure. to aim for of, yep. of young male Here's teens. Yep. Young and hetero white heterosexual teens. teens. Yep. yep. You got it. And so they they bring these aspects to the show, like Seven of Nine and T'Pol, that they know will attract young, early, late teens males, Caucasian heterosexual males. So yeah, I got you. Like there, it's. I don't think within Star Trek they're saying that you know, I don't think from the universe that Gene Roddenberry and others created. I don't think those people like are saying that only these people are beautiful although from a certain point of view one of the things i've often wondered about the eugenic wars is maybe mm -hmm. one thing mm -hmm. that they kind of did in the eugenics wars is yeah. like i i've often wondered they've never explicitly shown or said somebody was autistic okay. and i wonder if Eugenics wars maybe cured and changed things like uh, nearsighted and farsightedness, maybe sure. cured and changed things permanently for the whole species, like uh, deafness, although they obviously didn't cure blindness, but sure. there could be certain things that were just eliminated in the whole population of the quote unquote less desirable aspect of uh, the human species, you know, the Terran sure, sure. species. So, so here's the thing, like, I think that you were heading towards um, a mention of, like, tuning out uh, uh, 
uh, excising like uh, autism from the human genome. And I don't, I don't know if you want to do that. Like, uh, you want people who are, <laughs> you want people who are going to think differently, uh, and who uh, is because you need some people who are going to just like live in society and be comfortable, and you want people who like live in society and focus on things, right? <laughs> and like, it seems to me. Mm-hmm that a lot of people who focus on things and do science and stuff like and who like build the world for us are often on somewhere on the autism scale i mean to be fair everybody's on the autism scale so i don't know if you could ever remove autism without <laughs> removing the entire human genome to be honest like well i mean i i think that uh people like um khan Noonien singh are so arrogant to say that people on the autism spectrum are a bad thing we people out kind of you know they're kind of putting them on the same pedestal or the same level as uh hitler you know weeding out the um the non-aryans the 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 jews the um whatever i'm sorry as a complete non sequitur i'm just gonna say there is no way that you could ever get rid of the entire jewish people because everyone's descended from Noah. Correct? Yeah. All right. Just so we're clear on that one. Okay, sure. Okay. Here's the scene where Arium, non Arium, walks onto the bridge. Oh my gosh, so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, everyone's like, um, is that. Uh, and she's like, are, are they going to see that it's me? <laughs> and like, wait, I was like, okay, so we'll just all pretend like that's not Arium, cool? And I was like, okay, cool. And they all nod and they go back to work. <laughs> like, okay, it's, it's cool. <laughs> so, like, it's definitely not like a Cylon that's control created to come back and, like, pretend that they're one Arium and, like, is going to, like, bomb the ship. Okay, cool. But what's that device in the ceiling, by the way? The, uh, the thing about deleting Arium's memories. Like, I get the thing about a will, but, like, aren't there possibly things that she saw that are important? Like, I don't know, the sphere data? Like, do we really want to get rid of... Okay, well, I guess we'll have the only copy of it, except for wherever Arium's body is, control is there, because the sphere data is in there, and control's in there as well. So whatever you think that you're going to do at the end of the season to get rid of control from this uh, from this timeline, you haven't done it. Because you have to destroy Arium's body. You can't shoot her into space. That's the most dangerous possible thing yeah, you can do with Yeah, maybe that's why they body. erased her memory. Well, sure, but her body's yeah. still. There. I mean, maybe it- her body's still there. Like, or is it just an empty box and they burn the body? Because that's what I would. I'm telling you right now, in the 21st century, I would burn her body <laughs> and destroy it. Because if it lives, if if, if it's still viable, wherever I shoot it in the universe, someone's mm-hmm. gonna find it eventually. And then control is going to take over, right? Because yes. control is in there. Yes. What discovery right is oh. what? Like what? I, I don't know that? if after she, after she left or after she died, control would have actually had to evacuate because in order to survive, they it couldn't no any longer live inside of her. So evacuate what? I think that her body. But it's 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 computer program. It lives inside her programming. Her, the programming for her. For her motors, um, control is artificial intelligence. Yeah, apparently it's really good at SQL injection and um, like reconfiguring databases so it fits and stuff. So like, 
So like, it, it seems to me that like, if control wanted to live in my VCR, it could probably shrink itself into my VCR. Well, maybe, uh -huh. maybe not in my VCR because it probably <laughs> requires like quadruflops of data. Um, but you know, if you have a good storage device, <laughs> then control will probably live there. And if you have uh, humans, well, I don't know, and Arium, but it, okay, so I'll give you that Arium is probably not the great storage device because her storage was like full. Like lady, if you, if you, can't she just drop an SD card in there? Like she keeps having to delete her memories. That's crazy. Like, that's wild as shit. Like I don't have enough space. This is not, you're an iPhone, you're a walking iPhone for real. Like you don't remember yesterday because you don't have space for it. What? Like what happens is like you're, if you're on the bridge, right? And then like, you're trying to like create new memories and your thing pops up and it's like, sorry, storage full. So you can't like, you don't know what the hell's going on. Cause you can't remember from one second to the next. Your short term memory is absolutely gone. Cause your storage is full. Like you gotta keep some, you gotta keep some extra SD cards in your pocket, or like something, or like a wireless, wireless hard drive or something. Like you gotta pop something in there so you can add more memories because you gotta delete all your memories. It's whack. It's whack. Like can you imagine if I had to delete, if I had deleted all of Star Trek from my, all of Star, all of my memories of Star Trek from my memory? Who in the hell would I be? Well, how much memory would be there? Like, how how much would I remember? Because I'm always thinking about Star Trek. So like, <laughs> they're like, what you in are. the world? I, I am. I'm, oh my gosh, I, I find this all the time. Like, I'm constantly. Just think about uh, Battlestar Galactica somewhere in there. Uh, probably sometimes, but like even when I'm watching Battlestar Galactica, I'm thinking about Star Trek, <laughs> you know, because like in my head, Battlestar Galactica is a version of it's like it's like it's Star Trek. It's just like they just I don't know. I haven't figured out the timeline yet, but I'm gonna figure it out <laughs> because I think all of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, no, no, I actually okay. have figured it out. So all of Battlestar Galactica happens like a hundred thousand years before Star Trek. Because it happens like way in the past, it happens before the human race starts on this planet, right? And then later we do Star Trek. So, but free the pre the prequel is Battlestar Galactica, and then like the epilogue is Star Trek. Well, no, the epilogue is is Doctor Who, right? Because he gets all the way to the end of the universe. But like somewhere in the middle there, somewhere in some wibbly wobbly timey wobbly thing is Star Trek. <laughs> And and really, Star Trek is a really wibbly wobbly timey wimey thing. Like it really okay. timey wimey's around a lot. We really timey. Like nowadays, especially since like this new century came, and like it's not the easy part of the like 1970s where you could like just create a new story. Like you just create a new story, and like you're not bumping up against anything. But now we're we got to be all wibbly wobbly timey wimey because we decided in the 90s that what we like to do was do prequels, and we're gonna take the story from 20 years ago and we're gonna tell you what happened just before it. Which I don't know if that was a great idea, Enterprise. Because, <laughs> because uh, now you've created some stuff where like uh, it doesn't all jive up anymore. Oh, so guess what? How how are we gonna fix that? We're gonna create a separate universe where we do like the same shit. What? Why? Uh, although to be fair, I gotta tell you, the mirror universe is pretty dope sometimes. Like we go in there and it's like just cool things happen, you know. And there's neat people there who I don't know who I want to meet more do i want to be the person in the prime or want to be the person in the mirror and does the person in the mirror think of the person in the prime as the mirror and themselves as the prime there's a uh there's a bio neural signature there's a bio neural signature found in project daedalus and it's the red angel and the red angel is the signature of burnham herself which is a lie sort of like the whole vaharai thing it's not true everyone goes along with it everyone's like oh yeah it's totally her but it's clearly not her. Uh, that's really the frack annoying. Um, and uh, I'm gonna take a break so we can talk about this. We'll be right back. So then we're back. 
And I believe we're back for our final portion of the Red Angel. Aren't you excited? Yes, I'm excited. Are you excited? I can't wait to find out who the Red Angel is. Because we're going to see two Burnhams, right? We're going to see Michael Burnham and Michael Burnham. Right? Right? Because we already know it's Burnham. Well, isn't it her mom the first time? Yeah. Yeah, it's totally, totally her mom. So, like, get down to the planet. Uh, they decide to do the we're going to kill Michael Burnham. I, I, I don't remember how they figured out that if they put Burnham in danger that the Red Angel would show up. Yeah, so they decided that the Red Angel keeps showing up when Burnham's in mortal, what's the word I'm looking for? Mortal peril. Peril, that was exactly the word I was looking for, thank you. The time that uh, the Red Angel shows up uh, at the USS Hiawatha, uh, she was in mortal peril. I can't really think of other times that she was in mortal danger, but uh, maybe when... Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't really think of another time that, they, that she was in mortal peril. But that's what they decided. They decided that if if Burnham was going to die, then the Radiant was going to come and save save Burnham. Okay. So they decided in order to lure the Red Angel to them, they're going to have to kill Michael Burnham. You would figure that being that the Red Angel would know that this is going to happen. Well, yeah, you would think that you would think that um, the Red Angel Red Angel would have seen that Burnham doesn't die. So. My supposition is that there has to be a timeline where Michael Burnham did die, right? Because mm-hmm. because the Red Angel would have had to come back and stop Michael Burnham from dying. In Although, order die. obviously, the Red Angel doesn't have in, any of these memories yet until they're, the events has happened. And we don't know what order the events are happening to her, either. Um, yeah, that's very true. She could be leaving the pe- future in a different order than she arrived at the past. Yeah, by what you mean that like she could be going to the past in a totally non-chronological way, which means that like say there's there's the points along the timeline that are like labeled in regular chronological order, like one, two, three, four, five. She could be entering the timeline at like three, one, five, two, four. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. To... So we don't know what she's actually seen first, but. I guess we're hoping that this is not, well, this wouldn't be, this couldn't be the first time that she has gone. Well, the, I don't know. I, I guess this could be the first time that she goes back to save Burnham. It certainly could be because it, it's still her mother at this point. Sure. We don't know which times are her mother and which times are not her mother, really. Because uh, right now, uh, we're assuming that each time she appears, or we had been assuming that each time that the Red Angel appears, that is Michael Burnham, right? But when we when we pull that back to that faceplate and we see Sonia Sohn, yeah, then everything is like kind of different. And then I guess it, you've got to realize you, some people up there on the bridge or even down on East Up Four have got to be thinking, oh my gosh, we are so lucky that we just didn't kill her because they could have just if, if, if it didn't happen to work out exactly the way they said then they would have just killed her yes the thing about like pulling open this this uh this roof was it really important to just open the toxic atmosphere to burnham because they have done something different like just have her in sick bay and kill her like was it really that important for her to come down to that particular place now if they had set that particular place instead of Esau four could it have been like just um it seems to me it could have been anywhere. Like they didn't have to go to this particular planet, but I guess it makes sense to go to this particular planet if this particular planet in this area is where Project Atlas is, right? Yeah. I suppose my understanding is that 
they created the suit. I, I think if she saw the event happen in sick bay, then they she would be like, no, it's not enough peril that they're going to bring her back. This is, you know, some sort of ruse or something. Yeah, but I think the idea is that the whatever time, whenever we think that Burnham was saved by the Red Angel, she actually died. And the Red Angel going back. So, so they, so presumably. Let's say the first time around the timeline that they actually killed her on Esau 4. Okay. And then a second time around is when the Red Angel prevents that death. Hmm. Which means that, yeah, they could have killed her in the sick bay and just had her completely, like she would have, she just have to be completely dead with no, oh, I guess that's why they can't do it in the sick bay because they would have, because there's so many ways, so many times that like someone dies, 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 but they're so close to sick bay they can be saved, 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 right? Yeah. So I guess we would have to do it away from sick bay, and in a way, it would be preferable to have happened in a way where they couldn't transport her back. Yeah, I mean, look, look, look at the uh, what's what's the cringe-worthy episode of TNG that everybody hates? Um, the honor, the um, of honor. Probably, yeah. Where the um, they they need the vaccine. And the lady challenges Yar. Yeah, it's Yar and Yarina. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I forgot how close their names were. Yeah, I'm fighting over some guy who Yar clearly doesn't want. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is an instance where they're close enough to Supe by a transporter if they can save her. Yeah. But the atmosphere itself is so toxic. That like her skin starts to burn. Oh uh, yeah. And then it's like, you know, it just seems like maybe, maybe they did. Maybe they planned it well enough that that you know there's no way that Burnham could have survived if she went to that dead part, the dead part of life. Yeah, and, and Spock's realizing that, and that's why he won't let Giorgio go get her. Uh, Spock is actually the one I believe who decides that like they have to not do anything to help her because we have to like let her flatline and you know when when she does that Pike tries to get Joanne um what's it gonna, to beam burn him up but she can't beam her up because of the atmosphere like there's a bunch of crap in the atmosphere that's stopping them from, from oh I thought it was a red angel appearing that she couldn't beam her up at the same time that Oisakun can't get the lock Tilly finds that there's a spike a spike in tachyon radiation right yeah so maybe that's what's causing the transport interference but if that's what's causing the transporter interference, then before the Red Angel appears, Burnham is not technically far away enough from sickbay to end up actually dead, dead, dead. Okay. So I don't know. You know, this is one of those. This is one of those moments in Star Trek Discovery because I've decided after reading the words of so many Twitter trolls, I've decided that I have the opportunity to simply enjoy it and mm -hmm. love it for being Star Trek. And there are some times when I just kind of like, you just let go. I just kind of let go of the yeah. of the disbelief yep. and just let it that, be what it is. That, that's, that's what I do. I'm looking at the scene now where uh, the Section 131 guy is doing the uh, retinal scan or whatever he's doing. And I, I've i seen enough horror movies that I totally expected like, you know, needles to puncture his eyes and kill him or something. Yeah, can I tell you, that is the most horrible thing in the world is getting poked <laughs> in the eyeball by a big needle 
<laughs> oh, it did poke him in the eye. Yeah, it poked him in the eyeball with like a big needle that like spreads nanites all through his body. Yeah. It's so gross. And of course there there's like a moment of fear for me where like I am afraid that we are creating the Borg. <laughs> and I'm like, is this where we're going with this? <laughs> are you dropping are you foreshadowing? I am not foreshadowing. Okay. Uh ladies and gathered transgender species, um, I'll just have <laughs> you know that when we when we do our reviews of, of season three of Discovery, it's going to be a slightly different uh, flavor to the show because um, Earl Grey here will not have seen the episodes previously until the time that we're watching them to review them. But I'll have seen them a multitude of times. <laughs> so this should offer us, uh, I think, uh, a little bit of different perspective and different understandings, which hopefully we can bring to you as a viewer and uh, guide you through. Uh, oh, is that my camera over there? Oh, okay, and guide you over through the uh, through this through this next season, which I'll give I'll give my one word review of this my one word pre review of of next season, which is um, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. I'll give you that, but not so much the timey-wimey, but like a little wibbly-wobbly. But you know what? I, I I still love it. I think it's great. I want to watch the whole thing again, so I'm really excited that I have the opportunity to do so, with an excuse to do so. So, um, um, Michael says, you know, her line, mom, or whatever she says, and they cut to cut to black. Cut to yeah. black. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that uh, that they they prepared us for it a few episodes ago, or was it last episode? I don't remember. Uh, but they they'd recently prepared us for this thing, where like the end, the very oh yeah, it was, it was last episode. So where like the end line, the end of the episode is like the thing that's important. Mm-hmm. Keeping in line with my belief that when Arium got shot out of the airlock, that should have been like the last moment of Project Deadless, because the last words of the episode would then have been Project Atlas, which, mm-hmm. which I just, I like the idea of it. And like, I I think if, if they had like gone with that idea, it would have been pretty dope. And it would have set us up for the last line of this episode being mom. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so what do you think of the episode? Um, I think there were some things that were a little confusing to me. I mean, like I said, I, I wasn't clear on how they figured out whether or not the Red Angel would come if Michael was in danger. And uh, there's some things that definitely took a second viewing or would take a second viewing uh, with full volume and, and stuff. But um, that's kind of what I like about the time travel episodes is uh, you have to, you, ha- you kind of have to see them a second time to, to get it. You know, I I've always enjoyed. You know, I don't understand the the trepidation in within the sh- series of people that deal with time travel. You know, they always make the jokes about uh, pronouns and and tenses and stuff. It's like always just why not just stick to a tense, figure out which tense you want to use, and by tense I mean past tense, present tense, not things that you take a nap in when you're going camping. Well, that makes much more sense than what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and just stick with it. Just use, you know, present tense, because that's your present. You know, but anyway, uh, you know, I think it, it's getting a little cliche, that, that joke, but 
I've always enjoyed time travel episodes. Maybe that's why I've always enjoyed uh, Doctor Who so much. Sure, sure. Like, like I've said before, there's been a lot about Discovery for me that it's a little fast-paced and a lot of talking heads while doing stuff. It's like, which do I pay attention to more, you know? Or multiple talking heads, you know? And uh, I can find that a little bit taxing. But, uh, I, I'm, you know, after two years so far of it, I could find myself getting used to it and being a little bit of a Doctor Who fan they do that a lot in Doctor Who too so sure sure I um there is a note uh, because I, I was curious about what perchlorate dust was because that, that's what uh, Spock says that the um, that the atmosphere of ESOF 4 was laced with perchlorate dust making it toxic to oxygen breathing life forms okay uh, the note on memory alpha um, tells us that this is actually a callback in the writer's first draft script of the Star Trek The Original Series first season episode, The Squire of Gothos, perchlorate was mentioned by Spock as one of the constituents of the fireworks that greeted the USS Enterprise upon its arrival at Gothos. However, the fireworks had been discarded from the story by the time the first draft of the teleplay was issued. So I think this was meant to be a nod in like a, like a, like a, like a, a like deleted a, scene. Yeah, like a super, it's like a nod to a deleted scene from a television show from, uh, you know, like, She's 60 years ago, is it now? I've lost track. I just find that really amusing. Um, okay. It's, uh, it's quite a thing to nod to a deleted scene from a time when we didn't have deleted scenes. <laughs> well, when we didn't save deleted scenes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think that on a scale, I'd say of 1 to 10, that I think I'm giving this episode about a 7. How about you? Okay. Yeah, seven or eight. Okay. All right. Although I'm not sure what a ten would be. Well, so let's say. Well, so you have to set. You have to. You sort of have to like set your own scale, right? For me, like a ten would be like brother. Brother was a ten. Okay. For me, Um, and that's partially because of the the opening the opening little montage, you know, that had the USS Cassini footage. Um, and various other things. Um, uh, another one that would be a ten for me for this season, even though like I don't remember what our I don't remember what our ratings have been so far, or if we've been using a scale so far. Um, maybe in, really. maybe, maybe uh, moving forward, um, once we get to uh, season three, I think we have some other stuff in between there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think we've quite figured out whether we're gonna do. I think we're going to do the, I don't know. I don't know which, which order we're going to go in. Uh, let's get through this uh, this season of Discovery first. But uh, so yeah. Project Deadless. Project Deadless is a 10 for me. Okay. I may have said different last episode, and who knows. But it's a 10 because of, like, the suspense and, like, the cool things that happen in it. While mm-hmm. um, Saints of Imperfection is more like a 4, and Oval for Caron is more like a 4. Maybe we can come up with a different uh, rating scale. That relates to. Um, I I think I could say product project data list uh, is a ten for me. Okay. All right. Cool. Um. So or maybe yeah. Maybe a nine point nine. Yeah. Um, so that's what so, I would I would back I would back um I would back rate the the Red Angel based off of what what my score of project data list was and it would be a seven in comparison. So yeah, that's the best. Okay. So I um I'm looking at an interesting credit right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
prosthetic makeup, special effects, and specialty armor designed and created by. Prosthetic makeup, is somebody in the cast, are they uh, missing a body part? Well, no, so well, all the prosthetic makeup includes Saru's face and hands. Okay. Um, so basically anything that's like attached to someone, um, as opposed to like, um, you know, the makeup they put on Giorgio to make her pretty for the camera. You know what okay. I mean? Is that Glenn Hetrick? Yes, Glenn Hetrick and Neville Page's Alchemy Studios. Yeah, so those those two guys are pretty great. They they tend to go like kind of far. What what do you mean kind of far? Um, like the Klingons, for example. Okay. Like they do a good job, and they go a little bit far on the Klingon. <laughs> you know, like they do a little bit too much. Doesn't yeah? There's no way Laurel's head needs, needs to be that big, but they do it and they do it well. Um, my my belief has always been that those aliens did not have to be Klingons. Okay. Except for the time in which they, in the, the, the time period in which they decided to start the show, it would only make sense if they were Klingons um, for there to have been a war like that. Or it could have been a, you know, lesser known species. But, you know, it's just the way they placed it, the way they placed it in the storyline of Star Trek mm-hmm. made it be Klingons. But were it not for that, those aliens didn't have to be Klingons. And if we didn't call them Klingons, I would be, I would have been a little bit more apt to enjoy it as something new. Okay. Well, the uh, Klingons in uh, the JJ-verse are really uh, uh, out there, too. I think they're similar to this. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the things, like the thing that they said about the uh, the way the Enterprise was designed in, in this show compared to the rest is maybe this is... I, I think you even mentioned this back when we were talking about season one, uh, that this is just the way the Klingons look now. The, the the characters in the show don't think that there's any, they don't know that they're notice any change. Sure. So they, and obviously there's still the idea that there are wrinkle-headed wharf Klingons and smooth-headed uh, t- TOS Klingons. Maybe these are supposed to be more like alien-looking versions of what they might have looked like if they had the technology today uh, back in the 60s. So that um, maybe there's supposed to be that transition between um, the wrinkle-headed Klingons of uh, Enterprise and the wrinkle-headed Klingons of the next generation. And they're supposed to be the smooth-headed Klingons of what they actually looked like and what they would have looked like in TOS if they had the budget. Oh, that's super interesting. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so this is a rendition of what the original series Klingons should have looked like, and this is also fits between Enterprise and Next Generation, if you assume that. Or the motion picture, but yeah. That would make sense, except we ruined that idea by doing trials and tribulations. Because we actually see, during an era of uh, warp-style Klingons, we see the original series Klingons, and they are just like they were in the original series, instead of... But they they hadn't been retconned yet, so maybe if they were to re-remake Trouble with Tribbles and Trials and Tribulations, maybe they would 
give them you know this appearance i don't know oh like if they did like a, a, a super remaster once more yeah <laughs> super interesting a, a a star wars special edition oh like the night all i can think of was the 1978 christmas special oh have you seen that the star wars 1978 christmas special uh not all the way through i've seen bits and pieces yeah i um i recommend that way of viewing it bits and pieces is pretty much probably all you can handle i <laughs> heard someone talking about it one day on on a, on a podcast uh but actually called stuff you should know uh which is really great i'm gonna recommend that podcast for everybody who's listening to this podcast because it's really great well and and and, and we need to thank our sponsors too which you know that maybe we can get them as sponsors yeah wouldn't that be dope um because i would definitely like i would definitely like uh, some advertising for other podcasts would be <laughs> would be killer here yeah so they mentioned that they mentioned they actually did a whole special on the 1970 christmas special and they were like hey if you haven't seen it do your series of favor and go watch it and i went and found it on youtube and i started watching it and it's unwatchable <laughs> um i'm not by any means a Star Wars like aficionado or a Star Wars snob or a Star Wars really anything because it's in the wrong time frame. It is also in the wrong galaxy. You know, like I like my science fiction to be in the future, not from a long time ago and really, really far away. I like to be in this current future where I live, which is becoming clear that Star Wars that Star Trek is also not in that future <laughs> according to their history. But or um uh Wookiees uh Wookiees who can't speak are not good hosts for a Christmas special, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and like just having people like wander around in Wookiee costumes and you know living like normal human lives, but not like speaking the language that I can understand, mm-hmm. that seems very tedious. So I got through maybe like ten minutes of that special, and then I had to turn it off. But I recommend at least give yourself the opportunity to go and look at it for a few minutes because you'll be so proud that you're a Star Trek fan. <laughs> well, I um, I think that I would enjoy some of the segments. Like, everybody gushes over the uh, Boba Fett segment. The first appearance of Boba Fett in, yeah. on, in, in media. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've understood that, that that is when Boba Fett appears. So, so like you can't it's one of those things like you know like like some various star trek things where like you can't knock it entirely because it led to the great it was the creation of something great but yeah you know not that great um i mean i i i enjoyed uh star trek the animated series and there are plenty of episodes in there where it's like that was only half an hour that seemed like a you know full story to me you know sure. yeah absolutely i would own it on dvd if i could but yeah it's uh it's uh it's it's on uh, CBS All Access though, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. So I mean, I guess I could do that. Yeah. Well, I think we reached the end of this episode. Yes. Um, our next uh, our next review will be covering Perpetual Infinity, which is season two, episode eleven of Star Trek Enterprise. Oh, Jesus, what did Discovery. I do? I actually picked like my least favorite Star Trek show to accidentally flub and call this show that because this is not <laughs> that. 
at all. So next, um, let's not do. How dare like, you say it's your least favorite Star Trek show? Because it is. I mean, there <laughs> there has to be a least favorite, right? Because if you have a, if you have a favorite, you have to have a least favorite. And I'm not calling it my, you know, the one I hate or the one I don't like. It, but, I'm calling I mean, it my least favorite. You can't have a least favorite child. You sure you can. <laughs> Absolutely, you can. You're not supposed to. But it is my firm belief that everyone who is a parent has the least favorite child. <laughs> I am certain of it. Um, especially if their like children are like wildly different in behavior and you know the responses that you get from them. Uh, okay. So next episode uh, will be Star Trek Discovery, season two, episode eleven, Perpetual Infinity. Uh, I think that we might have some new uh, segments, etc., coming up. So I hope you're looking forward to it because I'm super looking forward to it. And uh, I'll see you next time. This is Decorino signing off with my friend Earl Gray. And we will see you next time. See you next time. Support the continued making of this show through Patreon.com. Let's Talk About Treks is a production of Anodyne Relay supported by the Star Trek fan community of listeners like you. We review the copyrighted works of Paramount CBS's Star Trek team, of whom no copyright infringement is intended. You can reach us via email at email at letstalkabouttreks.com. You can leave us a message at area code 202-804-6312. Our producer is David Moody, and our writers, Jack and Earl, are on Twitter as at Trekstalkers, and would greatly appreciate the obligatory like and subscribe from wherever you're listening now. We record on Lenovo computers with Zoom, mix with NCH Mixpad, and master with Kako 3 Our intro, outro, and interstitial musics feature samples from Awakening by Waterboy from Pixabay.